today begins what's going to be a uh, probably a few month study for us as we, as we march through the book of Philippians together. But before I dig into the book of Philippians, you know, it's instructive that we have a little bit of background. So today's sermon is going to be a little bit on the longest side. If you feel your legs getting stiff, just kind of stretch the knees a little bit. If you feel your eyes beginning to shut, just look up on the lines. Um, but it's instructive for us to get a little bit of background to understand what's going on in Philippi that led Paul to write this letter. So Philippi, named after Philip of Macedonia, who is most famous because of his son, who's Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great studied under Aristotle. Starting to draw some connections here. And so, but at the time that Paul writes them, it's a Roman city, mainly populated by people, veterans of wars, people that come there to retire. And they're living in Philippi. Philippi is a, a town of probably about 10,000 people at the time Paul writes this letter. And he writes them a letter of thanks and thanksgiving for all that the Philippian church has done for Paul. But when it comes to the Bible and what our understanding of the the Philippian church, we get our information, not just from the letter to the Philippians, but we get our information from the book of Acts. And so when you flip over to Acts 16, Acts 16, Paul has this, this vision, this call. It's referred to commonly as the Macedonian man. Ed, can we bring you down a little bit? It's referred to as the Macedonian man. And this guy comes and he has a vision that Paul sees. He says, Paul, please come to Macedonia and help us. So Paul takes his, his ragtag crew, it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, and they head down to Macedonia, and they end up in Philippi. You know, Paul comes into Philippi, and he does just what Paul does every time he comes to a town. He begins to seek out those who might be in the synagogue. Now, if we read some extra biblical material, we learn that it takes ten men of like mind to form a synagogue. Apparently Paul couldn't find ten men, and so he goes outside the city gates, and he finds a group of women talking pray. And so he begins to enter into conversations about, hey look, you know, I find this really interesting. You guys are talking about Yahweh. Let me tell you about his son. So he begins just in the course of conversation to share with them about Jesus. And in verse 13 of chapter 16, he begins to describe that and one of them heard, her name was Lydia, she was from Thyatira, she was a seller of purple goods, so she sold high-end merchandise. She heard the word of Jesus. She got saved. And her family and her household heard the word about Jesus and they believed and they were saved and they were baptized. And the church in Europe found its purpose. Philippine rests in modern-day Greece and the church in Europe was born to the strivings of Paul and to the blessings of now, things are going really well for Paul. And so you might think, man, Philippi, it's a happy town. I mean, he, he walks out, he visits with a group of women, and they're like, what? Oh, Jesus. He's like, here he is. And so it's good stuff, but as Paul's kind of continuing on in his ministry, Luke writes in Acts that he says, in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune teller. Now, this girl is walking behind Paul and crew. And she's saying something like, These men are servants of the Most High God and proclaim to you the way of salvation. So this girl is taking it upon herself to enter into early form of guerrilla marketing. She's walking around and she's broadcasting everywhere she goes what Paul and company are up to. Now Luke gives us a clue that 
agitated Paul just a little bit. We don't know if it's possibly that she got his name wrong, he didn't particularly care for guerrilla marketing, or for whatever reason, but after a few days of hearing this message, everywhere they went, he turns around and he says, in the name of Jesus, I cast out this spirit from inside me. No big deal, right? This freakless girl from the life of the dragon. Well, the men that owned her didn't necessarily feel the same way about it. You see, for them, she was there, heels hitting. And they're thinking, man, what in the world are we going to do for money? This girl's our heels hitting. We owned her. She was our child. She was our property. And she's the one that helped, uh, help, you know, keep the weight on us, help keep us healthy. And so they take Paul and Silas, and they drag him before the, the town magistrates. And they say, these men are Jews, and they're trying to convert us to do things that we're not allowed to do as own citizens. Magistrates say yes. It's a tough deal. So they take Paul, they take Silas, they beat them with rods, they strip them of their clothes, they throw them in prison. Uh, from things have gone from, from good to slightly worse, right? For Paul. Things aren't going well. Paul and Silas and company, they're hanging out in prison. And uh, I mean, you have to think, they've been beaten, they've been stripped of their dignity, they've suffered. And where do we find them in the midnight crime? Find them singing, praising, and sharing. The sufferings of the gospel drove them to share. The sufferings of the gospel drove them to rejoice. The sufferings of the gospel drove them together. Now, a great earthquake comes along, and it shakes the prison doors. The doors swing open, and their bonds fall off. And the prison guard sees all this going on. And he begins to take his line. He takes out his sword and he thinks to himself, man, uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're all going to leave peacefully, not likely. They can take my life, possibly. Or if I allow them to leave, my life will surely be forfeited because I haven't done my job. Paul stays his hand. He says, we're all still here. We're all still here. Don't harm your life. And the jailer rushes in. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He takes care of Paul and Silas, and eventually they're sent on. Friends, we just witnessed the birth of the church in Europe. This is the church Paul writes to. I mean, he was there in its inception. He suffered early for it. He suffered greatly on behalf of it. And this is the church that he turns to write to. So he has a, a vested history with it. Now today, we're going to look at the opening greeting that Paul writes to the church. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Uh, some weeks we're going to take bigger chunks of Scripture, some weeks we're going to take smaller. I was tempted just to look at the first two verses, but I decided we looked at the first eight. So we're going to be going and going to get this done. Do you guys feel like we can keep up? I can talk fast, you can listen quick. Alright. Let me read for us the first eight verses from the book of Philippians. Paul writes, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of, of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace with me. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then finally, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul sends them a letter of thanksgiving. But it's interesting, as he sends this letter, he includes Timothy in the greeting. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, why do you think he did that? Why do you think he would uh, give Timothy billing alongside his name? You see, I believe Paul is setting up Timothy as the one who continued the ministry after Paul is gone. You see, the church isn't primarily about building up whoever the leaders are. The church is about the process, or should be, about the process of, of self-replication and working myself out of the job. You see, one of the jobs that I have here at Ridgecrest is to work as diligently as I know how to train up the next generation of pastors, missionaries, and vibrant lay people that want to get out of here. You see, one of the ministries that Justin has here at Ridgecrest isn't just to, to hang out with the kids. It's not just to even win them to the, win them to the Lord. But it's to train up the next generation of ministers. You see, if Paul hadn't had Timothy, if he hadn't actively poured his life into others around him, then he wouldn't have been completing the full mission that God gave him. Because the gospel isn't just for me, it's not just for Justin, it's not just for the staff, it's not just for those in this room, but it is for everybody that we pour our lives into. See, the gospel demands that we find other people to pour our lives into, to disciple, to train up. Do you have somebody like that? Are you actively investing your lives into the lives of those around you? Are you caught up in their struggles? Are you caught up in the things that keep them from living a productive lives? Because that is the call of community. The call of community is life investment. We can't do that if we don't get mired into the things that drag others down around us. So he says, Paul and Timothy, we didn't make it very far, there's three words. Uh, two of those are proper nouns. Servants of Christ Jesus. And so he says, this is the designation that he gives. And I think this is great Paul. He could have said, Paul and Timothy. Paul the Apostle, Timothy the Lackey. But he doesn't. He writes, he says, Paul and Timothy. And he uses this word in the Greek, doulos. Doesn't mean much if you don't know Greek. But doulos can be rendered either slaves or servants. But to a first century audience, they wouldn't have read that and said, Paul and Timothy. You know, house cleaners, like tiny word. We do Venetian blinds, but it's actually they would have read that and said, Paul and Timothy, slaves. They would have said that. This church that he had a hand in playing, this church that he was able to bodily suffer for, when he writes to them, he doesn't say, Paul, your forefather in the faith, Paul, the one who introduced you to the gospel. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants. Paul and Timothy, slaves. Paul is bringing this, this imagery back from Exodus 21. 
In Exodus 21, Moses is laying out certain laws, certain obligations that the, the people of Israel had to keep. And he describes this process. He says, look, if you take a Hebrew slave, after six years, you've got to settle through. But if there comes a part in this process where the slave comes to you and says, you know what? I love you as my master, and I love my family, and I don't want to go free. Then he get, Moses gives certain instruction for what to do to this person. Now, some of us in this room have daughters. And you know when they get to get their ear pierced, it's just this really cutesy deal. They go into, I don't have daughters, and so they go into, you know, where do they go? They go to the They go to the earrings store. It's a special store. They only sell earrings. They do piercings every Thursday at 3 o'clock. So they go to the piercing store. And, and they have this very sanitary method, you know, the alcohol swab, and, and they, they get their ear pierced. Some of you have sons, but they go in there and they get their ear swabbed. And so when we talk about somebody's ear being pierced, we say, oh, yeah, it's, it's very hygienic. It's very fantastic. You see, the process they describe is taking this ball, taking a metal spike, right? And they take the person's ear, and they hold the ear to a doorpost. And they take that spike, and they go... And they drive it in. That person is marked as a slave for life. Paul has denied himself to become a slave of Jesus. A slave does whose will? His master's will. He has no will of his own. You and I, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should have no will of our own. We should only seek to do the will of our Father. You see, that doesn't just impact us as to where we go to church and how we talk to people. This impacts what jobs we take, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we converse with family, how we make decisions about family. Because we are slaves. We have no will of our Our will should be, our heartbeat should be, to do the will of our master, to do the will of Jesus. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And he writes, he says, okay, this letter is going out to all the saints who are with the overseers and the deacons. Did I get it right? I see the in the screen. With the overseers and the deacons. And so he writes to them as saints. He addresses them as holy people. Now, lest you think that they've done something specifically meritorious to deserve this designation as saints, Karl Barth, who's a, a neo-Orthodox neo-Orthodox theologian, right around the time of World War II, had this to say about the saints. He says, holy people are unholy people, who nevertheless, as such, have been singled out, claimed, and requisitioned by God for His control, for His use, for Himself, who is holy. And he finishes with this. He says, they're holy is in the remains of Christ Jesus. You see, these people weren't particularly good, they weren't particularly valuable, but they were saints because they identified with Jesus. You and I have the privilege of being sinner saints because of our identification with Jesus. And so Paul splits this group into three people. He says, we've got saints, we've got overseers, and we've got deacons. He greets the saints 
And then he says, you've also got these people that have been entrusted for your care. You have overseers, it could be ultimately translated overseers, pastors, elders, teachers, whatever word you want to use. These are people that have been entrusted for their care. And then you've got deacons, people designated by the church to go out and to serve the community. But check this out. What preposition does he use? This, this points to mine. Proclaiming to be an English but he uses the preposition with. He doesn't say Paul and Timothy to the saints who are under the overseers and the deacons. He doesn't say Paul and Timothy to the overseers and deacons who rule over, who oversee saints. He says you guys are together. Paul is painting this picture of unity. He's painting this picture of joint purpose whereby we all go out and are in goal for all of us is the advancement of the kingdom. Jesus Christ. So whether you're on staff at Ridgecrest and you're vocationally called to do that, or you're a lay minister of the gospel, what your life should be, whether you're a doctor, lawyer, sanitational engineer, teacher, student, or just some type of narrative guy, your vocational calling is ministry. God calls us all to minister. Together, some of us have different callings, but all of us are called for the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. In verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives his high and exalted title of Jesus as Jesus, Lord, King. The Christ can be translated the Anointed One, the King. Messiah, that Jesus is over all. And this grace and peace he offers to them extends from not Paul and Timothy, but it extends from God. Grace, the forgiveness of sins, which was offered to them in salvation. And peace, which stems from that grace. You see, because there's no peace outside the gospel. There's no peace outside of that offering they received in salvation. And they can have that peace based upon their identification with the gospel. Those of us today who experience grace experience the hand of the Father. And from that grace naturally flows the extension of peace in our lives that helps us to survive the storms that we encounter. Verses 3 through 5, it starts to give us the content of the prayer. It starts to give us the content of the prayer. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So every time Paul thinks about the Philippians, he thanks God. That can't be right. Yeah, that is right. And so we know from later parts of the letter that there are people, the man, uh, if Paul had hair or he was balding or whatever, he would either lose more hair or turn more gray because of some of the people he dealt with. We know that there are problem people in this body that he wrote to. But his demeanor is to look at them all and he says, man, you know, every time you come to mind, I thank God. I thank God that he allowed me to have a hand in planning you. I thank God that he allowed me to have a hand in suffering for you. And I thank God that you also gave my ministry. I thank God. He goes on and he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. 
So we see that it's not just that he's praying for those that are easy to love, those that are easy to get along with, or those that specifically send him the gift. And he prays for all of them. He prays for every one of them. He doesn't just write and says, you know, I'm praying for you, Lydia, and for your household, for my bad times. I'm praying for you, unnamed jailer, and for your household. I'm praying for you, slave girl. It would have been a lot better if we could have given these people names. But he doesn't just signify them and say, I'm praying for this group, these charter members of the church in Philippi. He says, I'm praying for you as all. I'm praying for the ones that may find it difficult. I'm praying for the ones that contribute to the ministry. I'm praying for you all. See, he sees them as one cohesive unit. He doesn't see them as different parts of that. He sees them all as one unit because they all have the same task, which is to advance the gospel. To advance the gospel. And in verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he says, this is the reason. So he's got prayer with joy. He's not, he's not upset as he's praying for them. It's interesting to note that Paul is likely sitting in prison as he's penning this letter. Now scholars are divided. Is he sitting in Ephesus in a jail or is he sitting in Rome in a jail? To Paul, it doesn't matter he's in jail. More likely that he's in Ephesus. But again, that's, that's a matter for scholars to decide for you and I to decide. He's sitting in a jail in a sorry set of circumstances. And he tells them, one of the reasons I pray for you is in verse 5, because we share in this, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now this word partnership is elsewhere rendered fellowship. So this sharing in the gospel from the first day they heard about it. So Paul goes back, now he's making a reference to the early plannings in Philippi. He's making reference to his work there. He's making reference to those who have come to faith since then. He says, since you identified your life with Christ, since you were saved by the transforming power of the gospel, until now, we've shared, we've had this commonality. You see, their commonality wasn't in things of vocation. Their commonality wasn't in things of how they looked, what songs they chose to sing together, where they chose to eat lunch, how big their house was, or even... How they smell. But their commonality is in the gospel. Our commonality in Ridgecrest should only be found in the gospel. You see, whether we have a, a hair metal band up here playing, which would make my ears bleed, or we have somebody with a reggae beat, or we have somebody playing some, some bluegrass on a Sunday morning, it shouldn't matter. You see, the gospel isn't about preference. Church shouldn't be about preference. Church, the gospel is more than any individual preference I might have or you might have. In a very real sense, Paul could be saying to them, man, you guys have learned how to get over yourselves and get with the ministry of the gospel. Amen? You see, they say if you want three opinions, all you have to do is get two Baptists together in a room. Some of you are still doing the math. sad reality of church today. That somehow we transform it from what should be to what I want. Somehow we've lost the understanding that we're slaves that are only here to do our master's will. Somehow we've lost the understanding that the one thing that should tie us together should be the gospel 
and nothing else. We will do what it takes to advance the kingdom in Greenville, in Hunt County, in Texas, and around the world. Everything else is Christian. Nothing else matters. Is that clear? You've heard me say it. So he writes to them and he says, so thankful for you guys that you have gotten on board, that you have at the center of your being the gospel, that everything about you screams the advancement of the kingdom and nothing else matters. Now, we find good news for ourselves and the Philippians in verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, as Paul wrote them, no doubt they, like us, there are times in our lives where we're a little bit unsure. Am I headed in the right direction? It's not really sure. Paul offers them this word of encouragement. He says, hey, look, I'm fully confident in this. The God who brought you to salvation has placed you on this continuum of salvation. You see, it's it's improper for us to think of salvation as a one-time event that has no life impact after that. See, when actuality, when we think about salvation, it is saved at the hearing, believing, confessing, right? So, I'm saved, and then through the process of my life, as I get older and older, and finally begin to age a little bit, uh, I'm taking Rogaine for hair growth, and eventually die. Then I will be saved. So I am saved in the past, and then I am saved in the process of my life. There's a fancy word called sanctification. It's the process that God uses to make us holy. And then just as Mel McConnell went home to be with the Lord, there too will come a day for us where either Jesus returns and ushers us into glory, or when we die. You see, but the problem is, is this process of sanctification is painful. Bryce, as many two-year-olds, has a lot of falls, a lot of uh, boo-boos, or whatever uh, cute word you want to call it. He has a lot of cuts and scrapes. Uh, these generally result in a car's band-aid, because somehow the medicinal properties of a car's band-aid is far superior to an ordinary band-aid. the healing powers. Um, and so we put those on him. And I remember uh, putting my first band-aid on Bryce, the thought occurred to me, Sucker's going to come off. That'd be nice. And uh, Valerie and I had this conversation back and forth, and I said, look, no, my dad always just ripped them off. Just a quick tug of the band-aid. Momentary pain, and then uh, three hours later, he'll let me hold him again. She said, no, no, we need to get it wet, we need to do all these things. But regardless of how you take it off, there's going to be a little bit of discomfort. But if we rip it off really quickly, the pain is over, we get over it quickly. But uh, God doesn't work that. You see, God, as a skilled surgeon, has realized that we've allowed calluses to cover over the sin that we've so cleverly hidden in our lives. And so when he goes in there and he peels back this callus and he exposes this soft, tender flesh underneath it, it's going to get painful. When we begin to get real with ourselves and real with one another, when we discover our idols that we have so cleverly held, so cleverly hidden. We allow God to do a work with us. It's about to be painful. 
Now, as we seek to impact people in this community, as we seek to advance the kingdom of God, I make this promise to you. Life is about to get painful. Do you understand? It's going to get painful for me. It's going to get painful for the staff. And it's going to get painful for everybody who agrees to this mission. It should be entered into life. It shouldn't be something that you say, it doesn't matter. Because you will be given an opportunity to suffer for the gospel if you commit it to the advancement of the kingdom. Then on. Salvation is continual. Saved, being saved, will be saved. Now you can almost sense that the Philippians might have been blushing at this point. <laughs> oh Paul, you don't know us. All the things we've done wrong. Surely when Epaphroditus brought you the message, he didn't mention those things to you. And so they're a little bit leery that maybe Paul was using too flowery of language. Maybe he had miscategorized or misunderstood exactly the predicament that they found themselves in. So Paul explains in 7 and 8, he says, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul tells him, he says, Hey guys, check it out. When I'm in prison, when I'm bonded in chains, when I'm chained to a guard, it's right that I feel this way about you. It's right that I have this love for you, for those of you in the Philippian church, for all of you. Because I hold you in my heart. What he holds them in his heart for is based upon their identification with the gospel. I don't know if you're catching the theme of this, but at the heart of everything, at the heart of Paul's ministry, at the heart of what we should do at RBC is our identification with the gospel and nothing else. We go after everybody. Everybody is fair game. Whether they wear a 10-gallon cowboy hat or, you know, more into skateboarding. Everybody needs the gospel. And the church should consist of a diverse group of people. We shouldn't have a homogenous group here. We shouldn't have a group of people that all look alike, all talking in the same way. Just imagine if all of us talk about Justin. Oh, <laughs> if everybody talked like me, that would be But everybody needs the gospel. Paul's letter to them is based upon their identification with the sacrifice of Christ the reception of that and the saving work that he has done for all of them. And finally in verse 8, he says, hey, you know what? God is my witness that this is true. God is my witness that I care for you, that I love you. And he says, and this is how much I love you. I love you in my innermost being. I love you uh, down the, I just want to parse it out, I love you down to my very balance. Love you, but not just with as much as Paul is able to love. He says, I love you with the affection of the Messiah, of the King, Jesus. Guys, how much did Jesus love? No greater love than a man has this day laid down his life for the service. Jesus had laid down his life for those that would follow him. 
his life so that we might have salvation. He laid down his life so that we might have forgiveness of sins. You catch the wave of Paul's son.